Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. We continue our journey with the patriarchs of the ancient Israelites as we uh, turn our attention to Parashat Vayetze. Longtime listeners of our show will remember that each and every week we look at the Parashah, the historically designated Torah reading, and try and uncover some of the hidden meanings using ancient commentaries and the modern wisdom of our guest. This week's parasha begins in Genesis 28 and continues through Genesis 32, and it contains some of the most well-known stories of the Hebrew Bible. Let me give you an overview before I introduce my guest. This week, we learn that Jacob, the third of the patriarchs, leaves his hometown of Beersheba and journeys to Haran. On the way, he encounters what the Hebrew Bible calls the place, Hamakom, and sleeps there, dreaming of a sulam, a ladder connecting heaven and earth, with angels climbing and descending on it. God appears to Jacob in his dream and promises that the land upon which he lies will be given to his descendants. In the morning, Jacob raises the stone upon which he laid his head as an altar and monument, pledging that it will be made the house of God. Once in Haran, Jacob stays and works with his father, his uncle Lavan, tending Lavan's sheep. Lavan agrees to give him his younger daughter, Rachel, whom the text tells us Jacob loves, in marriage in return for seven years later. But on the wedding night, Lavan gives him his elder daughter, Leah, a deception Jacob discovers only in the morning. Jacob marries Rachel too, a week later, agreeing to work another seven days for his un- seven years for his uncle. The text then shifts gears and tells us that Leah gives birth to six sons. They are the progenitors of the tribes of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, and a daughter, Dina, while Rachel remains barren. Rachel gives Jacob her handmaiden, Bilhah, as a wife to bear children. In her stead, and two more sons, Dan and Naphtali, are born. Leah does the same with her handmaiden, Zilpah, who gives birth to God and Asher. Finally, as the motif happens to all of our matriarchs, Rachel's prayers are answered and she gives birth to Joseph. Jacob has now been in Haran for 14 years and wishes to return home, but Laban persuades him to remain, now offering sheep in return for his labor. Jacob prospers despite Laban's repeated attempts to swindle him. After six additional years, Jacob leaves Haran in stealth, fearing that Laban would prevent him from leaving with the family and property for which he has labored industriously. Laban pursues Jacob, but he is warned by God in a dream not to hurt him. Laban and Jacob make a pact on Mount Galad 
attesting to by a pile of stone. And Jacob proceeds to the Holy Land, where the text says he is welcomed by angels. As you can tell, there are a number of stories that should pique our interest. And with me this morning is Rabbi Daniel Michaelberg of Temple Israel of Ottawa, Canada. He is a Canadian by birth and one of the few Canadian rabbis by birth serving congregations in Canada. He grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and started off um, his career in students study, not as a intended to be a rabbi, but discovered that he wished to uh, enter the rabbinate. After ordination in 2008, Rabbi Michael Berg returned to his home congregation, Temple Shalom, in Vancouver, and in 2011, he became associate rabbi of Temple Sinai of Congregation of uh, Toronto. And since 2019, Rabbi Michael Berg has been the senior rabbi of Temple Israel in Ottawa. And in 2021, Rabbi Michael Berg was appointed as chair of the Reform Rabbis of Canada. It's with a great deal of pleasure that I welcome back to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, Rabbi Daniel Michaelberg. Welcome, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi Garden. It's always a pleasure to be here. I'm a, a week off cycle. I, I, I'm usually your Thanksgiving guest, but I, uh, even a week late, I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be here to, uh, to discuss. Well, it gives you uh, an opportunity to discuss a different parasha than in previous years. It's true. It's true. <laughs> um. So as I indicated in my introduction, this is a parasha with uh, stories that many of our listeners may have heard as children, and some may have even pursued the study of as adults. But let's begin right where uh, the parasha begins and this unique dream that we're told about. And let me read it for the listeners um, in its entirety. I thought I had it marked. Um, Hold on. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. He came upon a certain place and stopped there for the night, for the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream. A stairway was set on the ground and its top reached to the sky. Angels of God were going up and down. And God was standing beside him and said, I am God, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The ground on which you are lying will assign to you and your offspring. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread out to the east and to the west and to the north and the south. And all families of the earth shall bless themselves by you and by your descendants. Remember that I am with you. I will protect you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. There are so many ways to enter into this paragraph. Um, So what strikes you first that we should speak about? So let's remind our viewers uh, about Jacob's story last week, because we find ourselves um, this week in, um, in, in quite a contrast. It is last week that we look to Jacob uh, alongside his brother Esau, um, growing up as the uh, favorite child of his mother. And we could assume um, taking for granted 
uh, all of the various gifts that, uh, as young people, we often take for granted. And as we read this week's Torah portion, we recognize that for the first time in his life, Jacob finds himself all alone. He's separated from his parents and his brother. He's separated from the land that he knows. He's a great distance from all the comforts of home. And if we ground ourselves in what this might feel like, we imagine Jacob feeling quite lost, Jacob feeling lonely, Jacob really unsure of how to restore that sense of, um, of strength, of, um, of calm, um, of home. This is a paradigm that we often witness in, uh, in our biblical text of our important figures going through periods of wandering and emerging from this place of feeling lost. And it's at this moment in time that we can really relate to those moments in our own lives where we find ourselves lost, unsure of how to get from here to there, um, all of a sudden lacking those things that we took for granted. And so as we're introduced to these words, um, at first, we're, um, we're really, I would say, taken aback by the, uh, by the fear and by the angst that this um, young man feels. And as we read these essential words, we witness a transition. We witness a transformation. We're able to witness um, Jacob emerging from this place of being lost to this place of being truly found. Uh, well, it's it's wonderful that you put it in that context because um, the text tells us that he alighted uh, to the place, and it um, initially doesn't define where that place is. But later, tradition will uh, do two things: one, it will use the Hebrew word makom, which uh, translates simply as place as a designation for one of the names of God. Um, and following on your introductory comments, it seems like he has found some sort of um, faith at that moment that will help him through the trauma of his journey. And then, of course, later in the paragraph that I read, we find uh, some of the origins of Zionist theory and of Zionist uh, intentionality. So um, this text seems to be um, both for the individual and for the people of Israel. Is that an unusual uh, mixture of intentionality by the Hebrew text? Sorry, I, this takes me back to my uh, rabbinical studies when we probably had the same uh, grammar teacher, uh, Yossi Leshem, who uh, who taught us to be on the lookout for milim um, for keywords, and as we see the word makom, we recognize that it's intended to open our eyes. I, I sometimes, with our younger people, use different intonations to um, to look to our Hebrew words and recognize that we could find different meanings. Is it a makom? Is it just a place, or is it makom? Is it a wondrous place? And I would argue that at the beginning of this story, this makom, this is just a place. And Jacob is going to rest his head on a rock, probably because he's exhausted, um, and simply go to sleep. But we witness in this story, makom, turn into makom, in that it is from this place that he's going to have this dream. 
and he is suddenly going to be open to the potential for which he could not see before. Um, and how wondrous to imagine this sulam, to imagine this ladder um, going up to the heavens as a means to go from the mundane to the holy and to recognize that place in itself has so much potential. And Jacob now is on a physical journey as much as he's on a spiritual journey. Um, and very much his place, the home where he rests, his head, is a means for him to connect to his faith, to connect to God. Um, and so how appropriate that as we think about the Hebrew word makom, that we realize that any place, any makom, is a place to connect with the eternal. Um, one of the great teachers of the 20th century, uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, makes a distinction between time and place. Um, and he um, suggests that Judaism is often very much a, uh, a religion of time. Uh, Shabbat, um, the numerous festivals, all are means of demarcate time, but you're suggesting that in this parasha, time is secondary to the place, um, and that Jacob really uh, alights, as the text is often translated, to the place which is transformative. Actually, and to think further on Heschel's commentary, Heschel reminds us that we used to be a people that were tied to physical place, in particular the Makom would have been the ancient temples, um, but that once cast off into exile and, uh, and, and facing extinction, we, re, we, we reinterpreted um, our, our, our practices and became uh, a people focused around time, looking to Shabbat as a palace in time, I can't help but see the interplay of time and space with, with Jacob's words here, and that as much as he's um, opening his eyes to the physical place, I think we could probably argue that he's also opening his eyes to the beauty of each moment and, and recognizing that even that which might on the surface appear mundane, um, he can uplift in various ways to become extraordinary. Your use of the term uplift um, might call attention to our listeners to that unusual um, description of angels going up um, and then coming down. Um, one would have thought that normatively angels come down to earth uh, and then go back, but in our parasha, the angels are described as going up the ladder as if they reside on earth, that they are the uh, presence of the divine, um, and that uh, Jacob, um, in his dream or in this moment, becomes aware of how the divine presence is uh, found in, um, in reality. Um, it's a beautiful metaphor, and um, you know whether to think about ladder, I often look to this as a bridge of sorts and that we tend to be so focused on the here and now of the uh, physical space. Um, but as we look to Jacob's dream, and in particular to the powerful statement that, uh, that, that he will make um, as he awakens from his dream, as he travels up to the heavens with his mind and then comes back down, we're reminded of the potential to, um, to look beyond the uh, here and now 
and to um, and to recognize the uh, great worth of our uh, of our of our universe in its entirety, even including the godly heavens. So the beginning of this um, uh, little episode seems to be very universal. Um, all individuals could reflect on being on a spiritual journey or being lost and discovering for themselves um, some sort of anchor, hamakom, an anchor um, that gives their uh, struggle some focus. But then in the uh, little episode um, takes a, a turn, I would suggest, and becomes very particularistic in which um, Jacob hears this promise, not a new reflection, but hears it very specifically that this will be your inheritance and I will bring you back to this land and I will be with you to um, assure that you have this land. Could you share with our listeners perhaps some thoughts on how this becomes the underpinning for what later will become modern Zionism? So look, in general, as I think about this narrative, it speaks to the theme of scarcity and abundance and that uh, uh, Jacob will begin in a place of emptiness, um, will begin all alone with very little. Um, he will leave um, with a sense of fullness, um, open to the promise, and in particular bound to the covenant with God. Um, now that we're a number of, uh, we're 28 chapters into our text, We've had the opportunity to get to know a number of biblical figures, and we first witness Abraham making this covenant and taking a leap of faith to go forth with God. Um, we then witness Isaac receiving this covenant um, as uh, Abraham passes. And now again, we, uh, we witness this uh, covenant, this promise passing on to Jacob, and it will later go on to his descendants. Um, and again, it speaks to the um, it speaks to the beauty of the land, of the connection to the physical, of the association with God, um, with this blessing. The the beautiful words Adonai b'makom hazev anochi lo yadati. God was in this place, and I didn't even know it. And I often draw attention to the fact that what changed from the moment of Jacob resting his head and going to sleep and from the moment of him waking up, it's the same physical space. But all of a sudden, it's a place that's associated with God, associated with promise, associated with blessing. Um, and so in the, uh, it is from this, uh, this land that as we think to our connection to, um, to Israel, um, we recognize the, um, the biblical roots. We recognize that this land is unlike any other. Um, and as we think about the early Zionists and their aspirations and their dreams, it really would be to look to the um, to the ancient land um, as living out the covenant of the uh, of the early uh, of the early descendants and restoring this connection that would have been made in these early days. All too often we think of this promise in very physical terms, but you've suggested that this promise is a very metaphysical promise. This is a place um, of spiritual yearning. This is a place of uh, spiritual uh, foundationalism. Um, and more than even um, a place of boundaries, because in our 
um, selection this morning, there is no conversation about boundaries. That will come much later in the biblical narrative. This is a place where one goes to find fulfillment of the covenant. Um, and so um, it's a reminder of how important that uh, spiritual uh, component of the land is, um, even perhaps uh, for many superseding um, some of the political uh, issues that led the early Zionists to move there. Um, so is there anything else with regard to this uh, particular selection that we should chat about? Well, I, I would just, uh, as, as I look to these verses, you know, I often share this story with, with people who find themselves in a bad way. People who, for whether it's regards to health or life situation, um, find themselves feeling alone. And I like to refer to this text as a reminder that we never need feel alone. But first, we've got to open that door. That in order to make space for God, for faith, um, for um for company, we need to let that entity in. And so as I look to these verses, I, I'm reminded of something remarkable happened in this dream, and that a man that was previously closed became open. And often we, whether intentionally or, um, or just by lived experience, put those obstacles there, need to remove those obstacles in, uh, in order to find our way. It's noteworthy that Jacob will place a rock and that rock will serve as a reminder of this essential piece of his narrative. We don't so much use rocks today as, um, as reminders, but we have different types of reminders. And how important it is, whether they are physical pictures, um, whether they are beautiful landscapes that, uh, that we look to to remind us of the, the beauty around us or the people who we share our lives with, um, how important it is in those moments when we're feeling low to, um, to have those physical reminders to lift us back up. So Jacob seems to be um, spiritually complete. Um, and then our text uh, makes a transition um, and seems to feel the call of the uh, beginning of the Torah in Bereshit, where it says it's not good for a man to be alone. Um, and, um, so spiritually Jacob seems to have, um, taken some major steps and now he moves to the second step of, uh, addressing aloneness. Um, we won't enter into the question of loneliness, but just to aloneness, um, and moves to his uncle's place. And we see this story, which is not dissimilar to previous stories of the patriarchs, but seems to have some significant um, variations in that um, there are two women involved, um, like Sarah and Hagar. Um, Jacob will have two wives, and he will have some concubines. Um, and so he's a man who builds a family. What are we to make of this repetition of the motif of needing more than one wife um, and of um, the story of uh, Rachel and Leah. So maybe it's my rabbinic mind, but I find this part of the story completely unrelatable, and I find the uh, the story <laughs> of the of the of the ladder going up to the heavens being something that I derive much more meaning from. But as, as we continue this narrative. 
And, you know, granted, it's, you know, surreal to, to, to imagine in this case, Jacob having these four women in his life, um, never mind a whole brood of children to, um, to go alongside. You know, we certainly, again, are reminded of this motif of scarcity and abundance and that Jacob will go from a place of having nothing and of leaving the comforts of home to find himself quite barren to being the exact opposite, the, uh, an extreme of the other side of suddenly being quite full um, in having um, 13 children and in, in having a, a number of women in, in his life and amassing wealth um, along the way. And again, we're as much as we're challenged in this opportunity of how does Jacob navigate the scarcity and to find his way um, to a better place, we're also challenged when we witness Jacob um, really living quite fully. And, and how does he navigate the challenges of such um, when he becomes quite um, quite endowed with uh, with life's blessings? He seems to be very naive. A little bit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it reminds me that he uh, started life as naive, um, that he needs the help of his mother to acquire the blessing um, from his father, Isaac, um, and then seems to not recognize that this um, episode will anger Esau. And as you began our conversation, you reminded our listeners that just last week he had to come to a rapprochement with Esau. Um, and having um, experienced that, he again seems naive and works for seven years and gets the wrong woman. Um, and of course, that's what leads to the uh, tradition of the bedecking that um, unlike other traditions, uh, Judaism requires the bride and groom to acknowledge each other unveiled before the ceremony. Um, And so while some traditions say it's bad luck to see the bride before the ceremony, uh, we require uh, bride and groom to acknowledge um, that it's the right person, um, both physically and I think symbolically more than that. Um, So he seems naive. Do you see him that way? Very much so. And if we're looking at this more generally, as we look to many of our biblical figures, they at times appear blind. And having the opportunity to read, you know, to, to, to read these stories, it begs the question, how could you not see what was before your eyes? Um, why did Jacob not realize that he was marrying Leah instead of Rachel? Why did Isaac before him not realize that this was Jacob and not Esau? And we're really challenged, I would say, with the universal question of when do we choose not to see? When do we, for whatever reason, choose to keep our eyes closed, not recognizing the obvious that is before our eyes? And in a general sense, I would say this Torah portion is all about the imperative of waking up of making sure that we don't miss those essential truths that for whatever reason, we tend to close our eyes to. Um, Just to complete the the trilogy, of course, as Abraham walks his son Isaac to Mount Moriah, the text tells us he has to lift his eyes as if he's been blind to this entire experience until that moment. Um, And I think that's a wonderful place for us to leave the conversation 
the challenges of opening one's eyes to the divine presence, the challenge of opening one's eyes to what surrounds us. Uh, my guest this morning has been Rabbi Daniel Michaelberg of Temple Israel, Ottawa, Canada. I want to thank him for his insight and wisdom. You can find a podcast of our conversation on the chri.ca website on iTunes, and you can see a video of our conversation on YouTube. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, thanking our guest and wishing you, the listeners, shalom and a good day. Shalom.